Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's show, our guest is Phyllis Frank, the Senior Director of VCS, a mental health counseling and family service agency located in Rockland County, New York, with an anti-racist social justice mission. Phyllis has dedicated herself to the battered women's movement for almost 50 years, starting the first batterer program in the state of New York. She is here today to talk to us about the program and its impact, the shortcomings of the program, and other ways in which we can strengthen our systems to hold abusers accountable to their actions and to keep survivors and their children safe. Welcome to the show, Phyllis. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with you. So let's start with VCS, which stands for Volunteer Family Counseling Project, where you currently work. Can you walk us through a little bit the timeline of this organization, its history, when and how did it start? The letters VCS actually stand for Volunteer Counseling Service. It began in 1970 with an idea that lay people from the community could be recruited, screened, and trained, and then supervised to work with another layer of people from the community, mostly those who were appearing in family court and at the probation department looking for civil legal solutions to what really were familial and other kinds of mental health problems. Our organization was born, and we very early on recognized that there was an issue of women who were being mistreated at home by the very men who were supposed to love them most. And our organization got involved at the very earliest days of what would become the battered women's movement. VCS um, was originally funded by the Ford Foundation with a diminishing grant, and by the time the funding was out, the community began to fund us. We have a very long and honorable history. We've added programs to what we do, and... It is really amazing that in the past two or three years, we have added a New York State certified mental health clinic to our provision of services. So it's a beautiful and honorable history of what VCS has done, and we still have a volunteer workforce. Wow. So I was looking through your um, website, and it seems like your organization is really a model of grassroots organizing. It is exactly that. How did you grow your volunteer and client base over the years? Remember I said we began in 1970. The executive director at the time, a very brilliant man who came up with this idea, felt that women in the early 1970s were the most unused natural resource in the United States of America. Now, in retrospect, he was really talking about middle-class white women, and that is a large segment of the population of Rockland County at the time. Mm -hmm. And he put a little ad in the local newspaper that said, did you ever want to be a counselor? 
Do people like to talk to you? Do you like to help other people? Well, you might want to call this number. And I think 50 or 60 women responded to the call, and he interviewed and screened them and accepted 17 people into what was the first group of trainees to become volunteer counselors. Now, that was 1970. We continue to have 20 to 40 people twice a year engaging in our counselor training. We now have social work students who are placed here from every major New York metropolitan school of social work. Wow. Our reputation is the reason that we have an unending stream of volunteers now, men and women, and people of diverse genders. Now we have people of color along with white people. We have people who are economically advantaged and people who are economically disadvantaged in our volunteer pool. Well, I was going to say, actually, that when you initially advertise for volunteers, and there's so many, the population probably wasn't very diverse, and it probably came from you know the economic... Um, wealth of the area. And so it's surprising to hear that there's more diversity now. How do you, how do they have the time to be able to volunteer? In the early days, this agency was only open nine to five. As we developed, we recognized that people who work full time also want to give back to the community and many people do. So we are now open nine to nine, Monday through Thursday, wow. nine to five on Friday. There was a time we were opening on weekends. We're not now, but that could happen again to satisfy the needs of both the people we serve and the people who are coming here to provide service. It's really an amazing story. Most volunteer organizations do not survive this long. And, and your initial focus was serving the victims and survivors of domestic violence. But at some point, about a decade or so later, you published your book, Confronting the Batterer, a guide to creating the spouse abuse educational workshop with Beverly Houghton. What were the key takeaways of that book? Well, let me not talk so much about exactly the takeaways, but what we were doing. As part of the emerging battered women's movement, I was bringing in my personal life uh, information to VCS. I came here in 1974 to be a volunteer counselor. I was also one of those um, unused natural resources. I had two children. I had been a school teacher for four years before my children were born. The women's movement was making me turn around and scratch my head because I was saying, let's see, I have a house, two children, two cars, a husband, a dog. I think I'm done. And for many of my generation, there was no further script. Mm -hmm the emerging women's movement. So mm -hmm. I was involved, and if you were involved in the women's movement, then you quickly began to hear about the realities of rape and sexual assault mm -hmm. and the realities of what had no name, but eventually the words domestic violence developed. There was a consortium of people here in Rockland County, probation officers, nuns from our Dominican uh, convent, um, social workers, 
women from the various women's groups. The National Organization for Women was getting started. I was part of a little more radical organization called Women's Way. Mm. Uh, lesbian feminists uh, were getting together and recognizing that there was an emerging issue and that was the issue that eventually was called domestic violence, and the movement began to be called the Battered Women's Movement. Um, the executive director who I told you about of this agency, he was um, wise enough to listen to the voice of the community, and our agency began to participate in the creation of a, the first Battered Women's Program in our community, which have ended up being a shelter called Rockland Family Shelter. I was a part of an early group of women who decided we needed to have a battered woman's support group. So three of us named ourselves facilitators. One of us said, I'm a survivor. I'm going to go out and let other women who are in the position that I was in know that this group is meeting. And we decided, we didn't know if anyone would come, that we borrowed a space in a church and that three of us would sit there for the hour and a half that the meeting would be held. And we wouldn't go home if no one showed up in 20 minutes because we figured there might be a woman who would stick her head in at five minutes to the end of the meeting mm -hmm. just for safety to see who was there. Well, within a year, we had to move to another church because the room that we had was too small. Listening to each other and listening to the voices of survivors, we began to understand what the issue was that we were dealing with. And one of the things that we had come up with was that um, this wasn't... Uh, this wasn't a problem that was caused by the women that were sitting in the room, though each of us felt responsible in a way. If I made dinner late, I knew he would be angry. Why did I do that? And so forth. We came to that it didn't matter. Even if we did something wrong, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, no matter what we did, nothing justified, explained, or excused that a man would hit us in any way, push us, shove us, hit us. And be clear, we were talking about physical abuse at that time. We mm -hmm. didn't have quite the words yet for the bigger picture. And while we were talking about physical abuse, we knew that we, the women in the room, we were not responsible. So though we were looking for safety and support, we knew that talking to each other would do nothing to get the man who was our husband, and at the time it was all husbands, not boyfriends, ex-boyfriends, lovers, nothing would get him to stop. So we decided we should figure out what we need to do to talk to the men. And the goal was to figure out how we could get them to stop. That was really the very beginning of what became the Spouse Abuse Educational Workshop. And I think it's worth saying why the Battered Women's Program was called Rockland Family Shelter and why the Batterer Program, those words didn't exist either, was called the Spouse Abuse Educational Workshop. We knew we were talking about women and men. Mm -hmm. but so it we was could, very gendered. We could not use those, but you couldn't use those words. You couldn't say woman. There wouldn't be funding. You couldn't say men. There wouldn't be funding. So in a way, we were pretending 
that it was not about what men were doing to women. And we had very clearly that this was something that men were doing to women, that women may do acts of assault or might do harmful things, but there seemed to be a difference. And those of us who were emerging out of the feminist women's movement were beginning to put together, you know, follow the dots, Mm -hmm. that we lived in a patriarchal country that was set up very specifically by white men for a specific group of white men. And the ideals of our country that they came up with are absolutely gorgeous and wonderful and something to strive for. Uh, But it wasn't what was being lived out. It's still not being lived out. And the early days of the spouse abuse educational workshop, there were two family court judges in Rockland County who, when I approached them, instead of sending the women who are coming here for redress from abuse that their husbands are perpetrating, why not send us the men? Why not send us the one, require that they come and give us an opportunity to talk to them? This was... Was that in 1988? When in the demonstration project in 1978, and we actually started the program in 1979 where we got funding from VISTA, which was the same federal department that funded Peace Corps. And the reason that we got funding had nothing to do with domestic violence or perpetrators. It was because our organization used volunteers to deliver the service. So we got an actual, a very big grant in those days, $65,000 a year for five years. And then in 1988, when New York created a funding stream for Badra programs, Were you involved and responsible for making that happen? I was part of a work group that was meeting at what at the time was the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence. And that what they were coming together with was not a funding stream for batterer programs, but a funding stream for community coordination efforts. Mm -hmm. And they wanted those who were working with batterers, with perpetrators, to not be working out on your own. But to, and this is really important now, but to listen to the voices of battered women, to listen to the collective wisdom of survivors, to be, to take leadership from, this is batterer programs, and we wanted the police department and the district attorney and judges, we wanted them all to listen to the voices of battered women. And the way to listen to voices of battered women would be to give leadership to the battered women's programs that were emerging in our communities. And that's an ideal that the Spouse Abuse Educational Workshop contributed to and follows to this day, something that we would urge all programs that are working with perpetrators. If you're not connecting with the battered women's programs, and forgive my language if it's archaic, for I know intimate partner violence uh, abuse is, is the language of today, because we've learned so much. We've learned that, of course, what we've called domestic violence exists in lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities. 
and we have an analysis about the the root causes of domestic violence that make it important for us to understand patriarchy and patriarchal privilege. Mm-hmm. And actually, so your your organization began offering anti-oppression work in the 90s, and you participated in the People's Institute Undoing Racism workshop then. Yes. Uh, by the time the late 80s and early 90s came around, I was deeply involved in the feminist women's movement. And in fact, in my own community, I was a leader of the feminist women's movement. And I was deeply involved in bringing lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender issues to the forefront. And I certainly knew about intersectionality, although I'm not sure that that word was coined yet. I know mm-hmm. uh, whenever it got coined, but I certainly understood the interconnectedness of oppressions. Learned a lot of it the hard way. But there was always something about racism that escaped my, I thought, quite good intellect. Why wasn't I getting a handle on it? My agency was really wonderful in sending me, allowing me, on work time to go to cultural competence, diversity, tolerance, anti-bias, all kinds of workshops and trainings, and some of them were good. Not all of them were. Many were entertaining. I never came away, even though some of them were powerful experiences, I didn't come away with anything that helped me to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. Somebody sent me, a woman named Margot Adea, she's passed now, I lift her name, said, why don't you try going to the Undoing Racism workshop provided by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond? I think that may help you figure out what it is you're missing. I did. I uh, took a two-and-a-half-day training that was rather costly, uh, but I was invested. I mean, and, and I'll give you an example of why I was invested I felt myself to be probably the most liberal and progressive person I knew. And yet, in my life, there would be women of color who I was working very closely together with. And I remember an experience on the New York State Coalition where women of color confronted me with my racism. And I was horrified and defensive. This is before you took the workshop? Correct. Uh Uh-huh. This was in the earlier 1980s, horrified and defensive. And I can tell you, and only in retrospect, that I would have gone to my grave defending myself before I would simply hear the voices of the women who were literally giving me a gift. I have to commend you for having that openness to even attend, because I think one of the struggles that I experience being a survivor is being in spaces where there is no intersectionality, that there's no lens of recognizing how all the oppressions are connected. Oh. And and it seems like that kind of workshop would be a requirement for all of us doing you know, right. this work. Without that understanding, in the name of doing good, you're doing harm. Mm-hmm. So I went across the country. I couldn't wait for them to come to New York. I took the training From the moment I took that training, and I could not have articulated clearly then what I learned, but I knew that I had found what I needed. Every year since then, 
I have brought the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond to Rockland County at least once a year, sometimes twice, three and four times a year, to create a tipping point where people will share an analysis about, and I'm going to use the words white supremacy, mm -hmm. because, and I use it tenderly, because our country was built to be male supremacist and white supremacist. We've, you know, relegated the words white supremacy to the Ku Klux Klan and to skinheads and to Nazis. And most people of color tell me that those groups are not their problem, that their problems are people like me, people who are liberal and progressive but who do not have an analysis about white supremacy or racial injustice in our country. Mm -hmm. The People's Institute gave me that. And quite frankly, it was no different than my analysis that had already very clearly developed about patriarchy and sexism and the root cause of intimate partner violence. What I understood was that men, by virtue of being born male, I don't care what community you're from, if you're born male and are raised male as a man, you absorb without your permission a sense of superiority to women and a callousness, a certain callousness to women. I had that in my domestic violence work. And that, on some level, I could say all men are sexist and no women can be because not only do you get a sense of superiority that you've absorbed, but the institutions and the construct of our country supports that very ideal. So at the People's Institute, I understood that as a white person, I needed to give to people of color what I wanted men to give to. I knew what I wanted men to give to me. The number one thing, hear me, hear me, and respect my experience. And don't negate it, because you don't share it. And I began to know that my job on racial injustice, on white supremacy, would be to start figuring out how I'm complicit with white supremacy, not how I'm not. Mm -hmm. So the men around me who are open, like the men of Nomas that you met, who are open to how am I complicit with sexism in ways that I'm unaware of. And Phyllis, if you trust me enough to tell it to me, you can be sure I'll be informed and I won't repeat it. So I live that way in my life. I want people of color to know that I am so open to ways that I may be complicit with what my white supremacy. But please know I don't know I'm doing it because if I did, I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And once you tell me, you won't have to tell me again. I will remember. That's actually a great segue into my next series of questions, which is about the New York Model Better Intervention Program. That was launched in around 2004, 2005. Can you tell us about the program? Yes, I'd love to. The progress of what was the Spouse Abuse Educational Workshop, I could even tell you 10 names that we've had for that program that has ended up right now. The model is called the New York Model for Batterer Programs. The actual program that I run here in VCS is the Domestic Violence Program for Men. Mm -hmm. But from its Spouse Abuse Educational Workshop, it became the Batterer Rehabilitation Program. 
And suddenly I began to realize we can't, there's no rehabilitation, so I changed it to batter intervention program. And then we recognized that if you call it batter intervention program, people think that the intervention happens and the men would no longer be abusive. And then we called it the domestic violence penalty course and so on and so forth. In the early 2000s, having grown and changed annually, every five years, every, every time we learned something new, we threw away what we were doing that was not useful and moved to a way of providing a service that would contribute to the battered women's movement's need for social change. We didn't want to undermine what the battered women's movement was doing. We wanted to support it. And by the early 2000s, we had a model that emphasized offender accountability, was honest about our lack of ability to do much to keep women safe as a batterer program, but our job was going to be to not do anything that would compromise women's safety in behalf of running a batterer program. We put it together well enough, and we didn't have a name for the model. People were calling it, oh, what they do at VCS. Well, what does VCS mean if you don't live in Rockland County? It means nothing. And a group of us got together and said, all of the development, all of the programs that have contributed, because I wasn't doing this alone. There was a program in Buffalo, a program in Owego, a program in New York City. There were programs around the state that were contributing, so we decided to call it the New York Model for batterer programs. And that's what I can tell you about today. But know that it has evolved even from 2006 to today in 2018. I will give you some of the key elements. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to hear like when do courts use them? Are they mandated? How do courts respond when the batterer is not compliant? Okay. Those are, those are key. The first thing that I will tell you about a New York model batterer program, and remember that its key functions are to provide the court with an additional mechanism for offender accountability and for judicial monitoring. That only applies then for criminal court cases then? Criminal court and family court. I see. Okay. We serve the courts and any agent of the court. What if there's a child welfare case? Child Protective Service absolutely can send a case. Probation can send a case. The district attorney negotiates a case. Anyone in the criminal legal system. Now, we recognize fully well that the numbers of men who are committing acts of abuse that rise to the level that would have that case end up in court is probably a minuscule percentage of the cases of abuse that are being perpetrated in our country. So a minuscule number of cases will ever be in the court system. Although I guess there would be some variety Outside of criminal court, the other areas that you mentioned, like child welfare and family mm-hmm. court, there's no criminal standard for making recommendations. It's just behavioral 
standards, I guess, that but, might, you know. Yes, but rec- keep in mind that even those cases have to come to the attention of somebody for it to be in the child welfare system. That's so right. I'm only saying that of all of the cases that appear in front of those courts, it is crucial to recognize that it's a very small percentage of the actual abuses that are being perpetrated in most cases by men against women and children. Not in all, mm-hmm. but that's what I'm going to focus on for this, just sure, in sure. the big picture. Okay. Let me say it this way. The client in a New York model batterer program is the court or the child welfare system or the Department of Social Service or the probation department. They are our client. We are here to serve to extend their ability to do, to hold an offender accountable for whatever they perceive he has done, and to monitor him. We actually have a judge in this community who said to an offender in open court, I am issuing an order of protection, and I am issuing several stipulations to you, many of which I will not know whether or not you follow. I will certainly know if you follow the order to attend the domestic violence program for men. The reporting is weekly. I will know if you're complying with their requirements to attend their program. And if you attend it, that won't tell me that you're also doing other things that I've asked you to do. But if you don't attend it, it will make me very concerned about what else you're not doing. So this particular judge was just, it's a a heads up. She's got a little confidence that if he's doing this, maybe he's doing something else, but she knows that that's that's not a guarantee. But for the ones who aren't compliant, there's, she felt there's likely no chance that he's doing other things, that he's, you know, not breaking other mm-hmm. things that she said for him to do. What happens when a batterer is not compliant? One of the key components of a New York model batterer program is that when a referral source orders somebody to come to our program, if they're a new referral source, we tell them, we call them, and we tell them up front You have to commit to us that if the person that you're sending is not compliant with our program policies, which are very achievable and fair and respectful, if he does not comply with our program requirements, you have to commit to us in advance that there will be an additional consequence to him. If there is no additional consequence, if he doesn't come or if he drops out and you don't do anything, that's really making a mockery of the order in the first place and even worse on some level, making a mockery of the experience of the woman whose damage to her was the Mm -hmm. initiation of getting him in the court system. Right. So judges in all of the counties that we run this program, referral sources know in advance that there has to be an additional consequence. And if there won't be, there's one reason why it might not be, and that is they lose jurisdiction. If they lose jurisdiction, we can't hold the judge accountable for that. It's done. But if he or she has jurisdiction or they, if they have jurisdiction, 
then they can order the person back. And if the person is ordered back, they have to start from scratch. What's the length of the program and what are some of the components? What are batterers experience in these classes? The program is 26 or 52 sessions that they have to attend. There are attendance requirements. For example, in a 26-session order, they can have three absences, which they must make up at the end. If they're absent a fourth time, they're dismissed and sent back to the court. They know in advance that they will be assessed a fee based on their ability to pay. They need to bring the fee with them with a fee card that says what their fee is, and they must pay it weekly and be accountable and responsible for bringing the fee Mm -hmm. to the program. I guess I want to be clear with you. Our goal is to hold the offender accountable for what we can hold him accountable for. Mm -hmm. We do not make a mockery of accountability. Mm -hmm. So when we tell him the program starts at 6.30, he has to arrive on time. If he's late, there is no such thing as late because either you come on time or you're absent. What determines whether someone is placed in the 26 versus the 52-week program? That is at the discretion of the referral source. Because I would think that there's a difference in the quality and the effectiveness of a program that's longer, that it will be, in theory, more effective than the 26-week program. In theory, I want you to really, I want everyone who hears this to understand what does effectiveness mean. Every man learns that something happened to him as a result of what he's done. A few decades ago, men would commit these same acts and nothing would happen to them. There are many places and most cases where there's no court involvement. Nothing happens to men who do this. So everybody learns that something has happened to them because of what the court or referral source perceived they did. Every man in the program is required to do something by order of the court that he might not otherwise want to do. Every man has to attend in a manner that is acceptable to the program, which means he must arrive on time, pay his fee. He must act respectfully from the moment he enters our parking area until he leaves. These are basic requirements. He knows that if any instructor in the program suspects that he has been uh, drinking or is high, that he'll be asked to leave and will be marked absent for that evening. He can be asked to leave at any time for any reason, and he has to agree that he will leave, and if he wants a hearing, he can call the next day, and he will have a hearing if he feels that something happened that was not fair. So is it effective? Yes, something happened to him, rather than just in the state of New York, an ACD, which is an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal, or a CD, which is a conditional discharge. For the most part, though those are, you know, those are part of what happens to him, many uh, battered women's advocates feels that that's a, a warning, a little bit of shaking a finger at him and saying, don't do it again. Sorry, can you explain how those two, the ACD and the CD, relate to the batterer program? 
because that's a disposition of a court case. Oh, it can be an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal or a conditional discharge. I see. In both instances, he walks. Okay, and as and a result told, of that, he has to take this course. Not as a result of that. In addition, in to, addition that, to that, the judge can, and here's what we've been asking of judges, okay. do something more serious than saying, keep a clean keep a clean record for six months, and then we'll, you know, you'll be done. So we are adding a another method of accountability that's a little bit more serious than just being told, don't do it again. So if the um, participant in the batter intervention program is noncompliant in some way while they have these other two, I guess, charges, mm-hmm. um, does that impact the other two charges? Will the adjournment and contemplation of dismissal be no longer dismissed? That is up to the judge. I see. That is totally up to the judge. If he's attending as a condition of probation, the probation officer can violate him, or the probation officer can say, I'm going to give you another chance, but you have to go back and start from day one. What actually happens in these courses? The most people's the interest is is in what goes on in the sessions themselves. Let me start by saying a basic premise of our program is that every man is capable of treating the women in his life respectfully. Every man is capable of treating the women in his life respectfully. So that's a basic premise. Another basic premise is that it is critical that the instructors and all of the staff that interface with the men who are ordered here, no matter how angry or nasty the men who are ordered here may be, and not all of them, actually most of them are not when they, when they are here with us, that it is critical that we respond to them in a way that is fully respectful of who they are. Um, people have... A, really distorted ideas about who are the men who are ordered to batterer programs. And one of the ways that I like to say it is that they are simply men from our community. They come from every corner of our community. There is no race, religion, ethnic group. There is no corner where there aren't men who are being abusive to women. Nobody is exempt from this. The men could be your brother or your father. It could be your partner. It could be my son. It could be my cousin. It could be my college professor. And at one time, it actually was my pediatrician who treated me with the utmost of respect, which is why I chose to go to him. But on a visit to our local domestic violence shelter where I was on the board, I was a little startled to find his wife. So we have to learn to not have stereotypes about the men who are in the program. Some of them are philanthropists in our community. Some of them are faith leaders. Some of them are police officers and child protective service workers. I hope that helps people to understand that we're not talking about a subset of monster. We're simply talking about the men of our community. This is the kind of material we teach in the program. We also talk about the, the roots of domestic violence. We, ha- we define what do we mean by domestic violence. I actually have put something down on paper that we like to share as a, a place to start off the discussion. The paper says 
deeply rooted in history, laws, and culture, is our patriarchal system under which males are entitled to hold primary power and dominate in roles of political leadership, religious and moral authority, social privilege, and control of property. This is simply history of the United States. In the domain of the family, fathers or father figures hold authority over women and children. Um, now, there are many people who say, that's not my experience. Um, you know, I was raised by all women. The roots of domestic violence aren't in your family, although it seems like there are generational families where men are abusive to women. Of course there are. There are many families where men have been raised by women. Men have been raised in families where there are gentle and respectful men. It's bigger than the family. It is really deeply rooted in literally every culture and helpful for people to recognize that domestic violence or men's, specifically men's violence against women, and again, I'm saying this knowing that to understand domestic violence in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities, one first has to understand patriarchal privilege because in some ways it's the father of domestic violence as it gets manifested in other communities, but based on different sources of power for one of the partners over the other. So what I'm hearing you say is when you started off saying that every man is capable of treating the women in his life respectfully, I'm hearing you say that it's a choice. Well, uh, is that right? Yes, in a way. But remember that I talked about myself, helped to see I was being racist, and I absolutely denied it. And if someone said I had a choice about being racist, I would have said, if I had a choice, I wouldn't do it. We believe that there are many men who are acting out against women in ways that feel so entitled that they're not so much choosing, they just act that way. And some men are not willing to hear, like I wasn't willing to hear about the impact that I was having. Um, so yes, there are many men who choose to assault but there are many men who interrupt, who say mean things, who redefine women's experiences and don't have a clue that they're doing it. Now, the question is, if somebody tells them, will they care? It's not so simple as men have a choice. They can opt out. They can opt out of mistreating women. Let's put it that way. Okay. Every man can opt out of mistreating women. Every man so let, let me turn to the uh, Emerge program in Massachusetts. They have a batter intervention program too. And I, I want to read to you um, what it says on their website about anger management programs. Um, it says, they do not include anger management and conflict resolution. Their website specifically says, quote, anger management is not individualized or specific to the issue of anger in a relationship unquote, and that, quote, many people who think they need anger management actually need abuser education, unquote. So um, it was interesting to me that in this program, they called out anger management as not being appropriate for domestic violence perpetrators, and yet it's used in many criminal situations 
to adjudicate crimes. So can you shed some light on anger management? I agree with Emerge on this particular issue wholly. When you are sending a man to an anger management program who has assaulted or otherwise abused the woman who is his partner, what you are saying is that the nexus of the problem is his anger. Susan Schechter, one of the mothers of the battered women's movement, said very early on, anger is not the source of the problem. Anger, in fact, is a strategy to control. It's one of the tactics that men use to control women. Anger, in fact, is an emotion, and all of us get angry. The key is, what do you do when you're angry? And the fact that you behave in that way doesn't come out of your anger. It comes out of your entitlement to do so, your sense that it's all right for you to do this, and your sense that you need to be in charge or that you have the right to be. So when they say abuser education, we go back to what do we actually do in the sessions We share with the men the same information that I'm sharing with you. We tell them the truth about the history of domestic violence. We tell them the truth about their capacity to understand our definition of domestic violence. We talk to them about women's self-authority and their ability to question whether they have a right to give her permission to do or not to do, that she has rights. We talk to him in the same way we talk to other people, because remember, I told you we're talking to faith leaders, pediatricians, laborers. We're talking to people with various, varying educations, but we're talking to them about what we consider to be a social justice issue. Domestic violence is a human rights, social justice issue. So it sounds like in those courses, it's actually kind of like feminist studies 101. You're debunking our social structures and how we create identity. We're talking about our social structures, how our social structures, how the construct of our nation created marriage ceremonies. Marriage ceremonies were passage of property. They were not about unions of two people in love. Uh, We still talk about fathers giving away the bride, you you don't hear anyone giving away the groom because women and girls were chattel and property. The men and counselors, when we say this out loud, you say, oh my gosh, I never realized that. So when they hear about it, they're surprised and they're enlightened? Everybody is surprised. I would say that almost 100% of the men who come through the program are incredibly enlightened, will walk away and say things like, why didn't anybody ever show this stuff to me before? Many of them will say, I can see things about the way I have interacted with my wife and with women, my girlfriend. My Many of them will walk away saying that, and I need you to hear this and your listeners to hear this more than anything else. That says nothing about how they will behave in the privacy of their relationship with their intimate partner. So you're saying that even when there's, or when they're articulating that they understand, there might be a shift in mindset, but not a shift in behavior? Correct. And all I'm saying is that there is no way to know, based on the way a man is behaving, 
in the room with our instructors and with me, there's no way I can know how he's behaving at home with his intimate partner. You may or may not know this. I'm going to guess you do. But in 1996, the the head, the director of the second largest batterer program in the state of New York murdered his ex-girlfriend who was with her current boyfriend. The program was closed down in one day. So is that giving you an example that proves my point? I also had an instructor in this program many, many years ago. I hired him after 35 people applied for a job. He worked with me for more than six months. He shadowed me, which is how he learned all of this material. He was teaching classes, and he came into work one day crying. He was out on bail, but he had been arrested for two counts of sexual and one count of physical assault against his partner. This was a man who was teaching the material. So this is not news that batterer programs want to hear because everybody's knee-jerk reaction is you want to say a man's in a batterer program. What's the point? Can't you get him to stop? The reality is, is we can be a service to the court. We can hold him accountable. We can provide him with a wealth of information everything he needs to know to make it possible for him to do personal transformation. But here's the key line, if he wants to. Is there any way to tell if he wants to? There is no way that I can tell if he wants to, because even the man who says how much he wants to, I cannot tell. The person who likely knows is the woman that he's partnered with. One piece I want to share with you is that a woman a very long time ago called this organization, and whenever women who are partnered with men who are in our program call, I always direct them to call the local domestic violence program because they can help her. And what she said to me um, was, oh my, I want you to fix him. I want you to fix him. Please fix him. Now, we communicate weekly with our local battered women's advocates so they have the information to give to her. I don't want to skim the women away to a batterer program. They should be talking to the advocates. And I said to her, as you call the domestic violence program and I'm giving you their number, please hang up and call them. I want you to know that the likelihood that he is going to become respectful to you based on the fact that he's in a batterer program is not very great. And she screamed into the phone, you're taking away my hope. You're taking away my hope. And I said to her a line that I have repeated hundreds of times since then, and it it just came out as I was talking to her. And I said, I don't want to take away your hope. Even hospice tells people to don't give up hope. But make your plans based on the man you know you have. Don't make your plans based on the one you hope he will someday be. That's the reality. Will any men who have learned this information transform their lives? You're looking at me on the issue of white supremacy and racism. I will tell you I have transformed my life, my work, the way I see things, 
my whole role in organizing and understanding the interconnectedness. It's a slippery slope, social justice. Once you start, you can't draw any lines against anybody based on their birth and who they are. So can people transform? Absolutely. But should we rely on the fact that a man has been in a batterer program to think that he will no longer be abusive? No. What about mental illness? A lot of um, articles in the news when when they report on murder-suicides or mass shootings, there's always this call to explain it away by mental illness and the failure of the mental you know, health providers. So I think that has to be really broken out. To connect mass shootings and other horrors, murder-suicides, with mental illness is a, a way to not take responsibility, is a way to not see that most criminals are not mentally ill, And most people with mental illness do not commit crimes. That we have a huge problem of criminality in our country, probably greater than any other nation on the globe. And I think we have to look to the construct of our institutions. It's an easy blame. Oh, they, they must have mental illness. And I think those of us who are doing activist work have to stand very tall with the community that works against the disparagement and the blame on mental illness. It's not the case. People with mental illness can be helped and are wonderful people. The reality that we have not provided enough supports for mental illness is 100% true. So when, for example, with our current administration, there's a lot of people who you know, are quick to explain away some of the behaviors that we've seen our elected officials engage in and and some um, very renowned group of psychologists have even come out and tried to name, you know, the issue as mental illness. And, and I wonder what your thoughts about that are because, again, it's repeating the narrative of excusing the behavior as something that can be attributable to an issue that is not the fault of the person engaging in that behavior? I think this is such an important question because it comes right back to domestic violence. The majority of batterer programs in the country today are using mental illness and mental health strategies to deal with a massive social justice issue. And people are flocking to it because it gives them something to hang on to. When I talk about all of the issues that are so dear to the work that I do, some people in a derogatory way say, oh, you just want to change the world. And my answer is, that's correct. Because short of that, changing the absolute construct of patriarchal privilege male supremacy, white supremacy, and so on and so forth is the only thing that will take us on the path to an equitable culture where everyone is valued, everyone is valued um, based on our birth. And we don't have that. We simply don't have it. This is not about mental illness. I say again and again, there isn't a country on earth. There isn't a country on earth 
even countries and territories that were that were at one time matriarchal have been colonized, and now the issue of domestic violence exists across the globe. What do you say to people who are working in the space as help providers, as social workers, as prosecutors, who are faced with perpetrators who have mental illness symptoms? And how do you help them not conflate those issues and to actually look at the situation holistically and differentiate what needs to be done? Well, you've just said it. It is exactly what you're saying that one needs to discuss institutionally, not, you know, uh, those of us who are on the ground working, we need to talk with the very prosecutors that we work with and the judges that we work with, that there are substance abuse and addiction issues. There are mental illness issues, not with a majority of people who are perpetrators, but when there is a mental illness, do it in the same way that you would do it if you were dealing with an arsonist or somebody who assaulted a police officer. What do you do about the fact when someone who assaults the police officer you also think has mental health issues? Do you... Forget about the fact that he assaulted the police officer and deal with his mental illness? Or do you support his dealing with his mental illness while you hold him accountable? That doesn't happen in domestic violence. And that's the way I, you know, just separate them. I, I hear you saying that there's a double standard in the way domestic violence cases are treated versus other crimes. And that wouldn't be surprising if one recognizes that in a male supremacist culture, and again, I say that not as an accusation, but as a historical fact, of course, crimes against women would not be seen as seriously since crimes against women were legal. Because in the state of New York, it was not till 1976 that a husband could be criminally prosecuted for most misdemeanor-level acts of domestic violence. It wasn't a crime. So I hear you saying that the solution to addressing this issue involves a lot of education and re-envisioning of how we parent, of how we teach, you know, how children are educated in schools. So that's in terms of prevention. But what about the cases that are currently going through the system? Are batterer intervention programs the best thing for addressing accountability, or are there alternatives that actually work better or should be considered? And now remember, I've been doing this a very long time, and I am known to be willing to change on a dime when I hear something better. I've traveled around the country. I listen. I actually believe that for the cases that come through the criminal justice system, strengthening the mechanisms of accountability and monitoring is the very best that we can do. I don't think batterer programs are a solution. If anything, they've kind of created a smokescreen for other solutions because we're still arguing over whether or not we should do mental health rehabilitation in batterer programs. We've come full circle and we're back there again. I think it needs to be dealt with in the the way that we're doing it in New York Model Batterer Program, providing the very men who are ordered into our program, respectfully knowing that they are capable of hearing this information, 
could be my brother, it could be the doctor, it could be the lawyer, it could be the laborer. This is not hard to understand once you explain it. We share this information in high schools, and you know it's being taught in colleges. I do believe that the New York model, and again, I stay open, the New York model is um, as good as it gets right now on the landscape for batterer programs. And I think there are many programs that have many elements of it and are doing good work. But key, are you connecting with your local domestic violence program? Are they happy with what you're doing? Do you make their life easier and better? Are you doing nothing to compromise the safety of battered women in your community? Programs that do not have that connection, I urge them, make that connection and take leadership from your local domestic violence program. Stay open to changes that might help. So when you say that you think this is the best model compared to other models, I what, do. Are, is that based on completion and recidivism rates? Or no. is it statistically? It has nothing to do with recidivism rates. It has to do with the best opportunity for continuing the court's ability to hold offenders accountable and to monitor them for the period of time that they're in the program and providing men with the kind of information that would make change possible if they choose to do it. It does not guarantee on any level that they will do it, that they will act respectfully from this point forward. But frankly, a program can only do so much. It is not the be-all, end-all. And if all of your eggs are in the batterer program, expend at least a percentage of your energy thinking about what else needs to be done to create a social justice movement, to do the legislative and, and institutional changes that have to occur that will make a real difference. Batterer programs cannot guarantee, I don't care what they're doing that the men who are in them will no longer be abusive. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our conversation. At the end of each Engendered podcast, we like to ask our guest a series of questions that I've created, which is modeled after James Lipton's Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire. So I've created an Engendered questionnaire for all our guests. The first question is, what's at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Safety for all peoples, creating families where, where children can flourish because whoever the parent or parents or caretakers are interact in a manner that we would love to model for our children but don't. There's a lot of skin in this game. This could change the world. We have a quick little question where we ask Men in the program, one of, our, one of our questions is, what is the greatest gift a father can give to his child? The men come up with great answers, but our answer is to love and respect the person who is their mother. And if that were to happen, to respect the mother, we would be free and clear. I agree with that. <laughs> what gives you hope? Young people, you, I base a lot of my work now on the trans women of color who I feel if we make our programs responsive to that woman, that person, however that person would be called, we will be lifted and, and it works for them, 
it will lift everybody. So like the Black Lives Matter movement centers itself on the lives of black trans women, and there are so many incredible activists in a range of movements, the movement to end all the domestic or intimate partner abuse, Black Lives Matter, just so many organizations that have that, that intersectional key and knowledge. That gives me great hope. Okay, and our final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? This is to our listeners. Yes. What, what can we do more of? More social justice work, more movement work, less individual. We have to do the individual work, but Suzanne Farr, one of another great mothers of our movement, said that the our greatest failing uh, in the battered women's movement, which what it had been called, was to do too much, quote, social casework and not enough social justice work. So we have to think big. We have to really think big, getting more women, uh, women of every community into positions of power. That will not overthrow men. It will equalize and, and create a more just world. I think that's the thought that comes to me in answer to that question. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis. Uh, I really appreciate your insights into this very important topic and I wish you the best of luck in your work. Thank you so very much. I've enjoyed talking with you as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuen. Thank you.